0: Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.
1: There's almost no decision that's actually permanent. Decisions are all reversible to some degree or another. Uh, It's really a question of cost. So even if you take like what university are you going to, you can transfer. And people transfer all the time. There's a cost of transferring. But it turns out that the cost of transferring is actually kind of low because credits transfer. So so it's actually less expensive than you might think to transfer colleges. But people don't really think about that when they go into the college decision. And then they get in this horrible anxiety and analysis paralysis and who am I gonna, you know, which, which one am I gonna choose? Because they forget about the reversibility. And there are people who are really pouring over dating profiles and and really stressed about whether they should go on a date with someone or who should they choose to go on a date with or whatever. Because I think that we tend to think about these things as much more permanent and final than they actually are. But dating is by definition, super quittable. You go on a date with somebody, nobody says that you have to go on a date with them again. You can quit.
0: I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who started movements, built thriving businesses, written best selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500 episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com.
2: Annie, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us.
1: Well, thank you for having me back.
2: Yeah, it is my pleasure to have you back here. So uh, to me, I think it says a whole hell of a lot about a guest uh, when we have them back a second time, uh, because, you know, their first conversation resonated with me so much. Uh, Your first book, Thinking and Bets, one of those things that has played a huge role in my life ever since our conversation, when I think about all the decisions I've had to make. And now you have a new book, How to Decide, uh, with a really, really, you know, powerful framework for making important decisions. But Before we get into that, I want to start by asking you what social group were you a part of in high school and what impact did that end up having on the choices you've made throughout your life and your career?
1: Oh, my God, that's such a funny question. So I had a very strange high school experience. Um, My father grew up in West Philadelphia. This is important for the group that I'm in in high school. I promise I will get there. So My father grew up in West Philly. Uh, both of his parents were uh, first generation. Um, his dad did, it, I think he may have finished sixth grade or he may have actually dropped out in sixth grade because he became orphaned. Um, and so he, he didn't actually finish anything beyond sixth grade. And my father uh, went to West Philly High and graduated from there. And then... Um, went on from Westville High with you know with a dad himself who had never finished middle school and uh went to ha- Haverford College then Harvard where he got a uh, a master's in English and then he ended up teaching at a school called St. Paul's School I'm not sure if people are familiar with that but there's there's kind of like uh, St. Paul's School Exeter Andover Groton Hotchkiss you know these are like you know, the school has been in existence since the 1800s. Yeah. It's, you know, quite a, an elite boarding school. So my dad ended up being a master there, a teacher there. Um, and one of the perks of being a teacher there was that your kids could go to the school for free. Which was quite lucky because um, the school is expensive. It's like paying for college because it's a boarding school. Right. Um, yeah. Now, the thing about this school is that um, they don't have day students which a lot of boarding schools will allow for day students. But this particular school, everybody was boarding. Um, it's okay. much smaller than a lot of the other schools. So it's only about 500 kids. Um, and, you know, I mean, I, the people that I was going to school with, their last names were things like Rockefeller.
2: <laughs> Is that where F. Scott Fitzgerald went to school?
1: Uh, I don't know if he went to St. Paul's, but John Kerry went to St. Paul's. Robert Mueller went to okay. St. Paul's. Wow. Uh, yeah, I know. Right. Oh, you know, who? Else? Gary Trudeau, Doonesbury, who went to St. Paul.
3: Okay.
1: I mean, there's just it's like a lot of senators and, you know. Uh, oh, uh, you know who else went to St. Paul's, which is kind of interesting. Archibald Cox. You should re- recognize that name um, from the, uh, the Watergate. So. Okay. Um, so anyway, you know, this is you know, this is really where like there were DuPonts and Rockefellers, the Pillsbury family sent their kids there. Um. And my dad was, you know, a kid, a child of immigrants, Jewish at an Episcopalian school. I'm a faculty brat. Um, you know, we don't have any money, except, you know, because he's on it, it's a teacher's salary and it's it was a one salary household. And so I was just weird. I, you know, there I wasn't certainly wasn't in the popular crowd, I can tell you that much. Um And I was, you know, I just, I felt, I I have to say, like, I felt pretty alone when I was Mm -hmm. in high school because I could, I could feel so clearly all of my differences Uh. from the people who were there. So, you know, it was rare to be Jewish. My father, uh, during the summers, um, you know, because school obviously was only nine months a year during the summers, he actually flipped burgers at a place called Howdy Beef and Burger, which uh, is, was the sort of a New England equivalent of McDonald's. So my dad in the summers was working at McDonald's, which you can imagine if you're going to school with people named Rockefeller is a little strange. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I, I mean, it, there were other faculty kids who did just fine there, um, you know, and but I just, I felt like an outcast. So, but, you know, I think partly of my own doing because I just felt my differences so keenly. So, uh, you know, I, I, I went back and I gave a graduation speech there one year, you know, I mean, I did grow up on the campus, I actually did a sort of a zoom reunion with my class. Um, and it's kind of nice, you know, it's like, you sort of realize like what, you know, what people were in high school, some people stay the same, but most people become, you know, they, they become older and wiser and nicer, I think in general with age. Um, and so it was nice to reconnect in that way. And I felt sort of much more part of the group.
2: But it's funny because I, I've met friends from the high school that I, I went to in Texas for a year, and I, I remember meeting them 20, 20 plus years later. And I had this perception of them as, oh, these are the popular kids who think I'm just a dork. And it turns out that was anything but true. Yeah. Um, and they all ended up being really nice people. And you know, some of them have become friends. And I'm I'm always stunned by that. So two questions come from the experience of, of being there. You are this like, dynamic, you know, a drastic contrast between sort of extreme wealth and middle class. Um I wonder how having, you know, your dad be there and then having that contrast shaped your own view on what it meant to be successful uh you know and have a thriving career particularly among, you know, movers and shakers and and people who sound like they come from dynasties.
1: Oh that's a yeah, that's an interesting question. I'm going to pause for a second and think about that. Um Well, I mean, so, so let me just say sort of as, as background from that school at that time, I mean, I think that people have, it's not so much like this anymore, but people have talked about, you know, this idea of like, once you sort of get, get into that leg up, how much of a leg up it gives you from there on, you know, this, so what I mean by that is, so in my class, and it was a long time ago, it's not like this anymore, But in my class, there were about 120, 125 kids in the class and 71 of them went to Ivy League schools. Um, So, you know, you were just sort of expected to go on that route. And, you know, the the admissions officers obviously had relationships with the admissions officers at the Ivy League schools. And um, so you were automatically going to get sort of like, you know, and, and just to be clear, the people who didn't go to Ivy League schools were going to places like Stanford and Duke and Berkeley and, <laughs> yeah. and Bard and, uh, you know, Bowdoin and, and Colgate and whatnot. So, or, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't, you know, like if a kid from that school went to Colorado College, you were like, oh, yeah, I mean, it was ridiculous. It was stupid. I mean, because Colorado wow. College is an amazing school. Um, but you got kind of a skewed view of what that was supposed to look like, and and I think in a lot of ways a skewed view of sort of what your own responsibility and that accomplishment was. Um, uh, which I think, you know, I mean, it's interesting because obviously you you still have to do the work, right? But. The chances that you actually end up in that position at, at such a great university are just so much higher and and I think it's hard for kids not to view that as something that they earned mm-hmm. um yeah. and not to understand that you both earned it and you know just through through the accident of my birth right and my father going there that um I just had such a higher probability of being able to sort of get a good start right it, and obviously what I did with that start was my own doing, but i you know I obviously got a good start. So I think one of the wow. things for me was that I I think because of where I grew up, I just viewed um, what made somebody sort of successful. A lot of it was around, you know, sort of what did they achieve educationally? And I think from being in poker in particular, what I figured out was it's helpful, but it actually kind of matters very little to whether someone's successful or interesting. You know, and I think about successful as someone who's really sort of, you know, living their talents, finding their passions, excelling at the, you know, the thing that really kind of drives them. And, you know, what I figured out through poker was that so many of the really successful, incredibly smart people who were doing really interesting things with their lives didn't do the, you know, the sort of like St. Paul's to what I did, you know, St. Paul's to Columbia, to Penn or whatever. Yeah. um, And that you you were just as likely to be really interesting and successful coming out of that as not coming out of that. And that uh, the bon- those kinds of bona fides, those things that are sort of like the merit badges of, uh, you know, access, that uh-huh. uh, th- those, those started to matter much less to me.
4: How up?
1: So I don't know if um, that answers your question. but
2: Yeah, yeah, no, it absolutely does. I, I think it, it, you know, raises one more question then we'll get in the book. So, it, you know, I, I think that I kind of can relate because I got to go to Berkeley, son of a college professor. So a lot of similarities. I mean, obviously I didn't go to like a, a prep school surrounded by rich kids, but all my friends, you know, we we always joke that the dumbest people in our group of friends from high school went to Berkeley. All the rest went to Stanford, Harvard, you know, wherever. Uh, but, yeah, by the way, I, we... I
1: had a thing like that. Like it was so expected at St. Paul's that you were going to go to an Ivy League school. And in particular, the really strong relationship that St. Paul's had was with Harvard, Princeton, and Yale. So you were kind of expected that those were going to be your first choices. Um, You know, and I had grown up with this weird thing where I didn't really realize it when I was growing up, but I had really internalized that expectation. Um, You know, I don't know that my parents were ever saying that to me explicitly, but it was so part of the culture of the school that it was like Harvard, Princeton, Yale. Um, and having grown up on that school and sort of recognizing that Harvard, Princeton, Yale would not be all that different from the school that I went to, uh, and in high school and the school that the campus that I had grown up on, um, I decided to become incredibly rebellious and I, I applied, this is so stupid. I applied early decision to Columbia, which like, I felt like was so scandalous. (laughs) That's that's hilarious. Yeah. I mean, but you know, it's like, I think it shows you, it's like, what's your reference class? What's the size of your world? Like, what do you really think rebelling outside of that system is going to look like? And, you know, for me, because of sort of how I had been in some ways kind of indoctrinated, that felt very rebellious to me at the time. And I was very proud of that. And I guess like when you, when you asked me, like, what did I sort of see myself as their success? I think that one of the things that had happened when I was in high school was I kind of owned this, this fact that I could feel that I was very much sort of outside of what the normal kid was who went there. And I was a little bit strange. And I, I think that I just sort of embraced that. And I was like, well, I'm just going to be weird. And then of course, like. The way that I I express my weirdness was like I'm applying to Columbia early decision,
3: exactly,
1: <laughs> people. I mean, it's just so weird. it's so funny how a seventeen year old thinks.
2: Yeah, well, so one thing that that I wonder, you know, you and I talked briefly last time uh, about the college admission scandal, and I, I don't want to go into that, but when I you know think about stories like your stories like mine, the the word that comes up is privilege. Yeah. Uh, and what I wonder, I mean, I know you're a mother from having read your books, is you know how do you maintain an awareness of the privilege and opportunities that you were given. And, and how does that play out in, um, you know, your own parenting to make sure that your kids are aware of the fact that, you know, they're starting with a leg up. I mean, I, like I said, I'm starting with, I started with a leg up with a son of a college professor and, you know, as one of my old mentors used to joke, if you're Donald Trump, you're starting on third base.
1: Right. Yeah. So I think that I, I you know, I, I think partly because of, um, the experience in poker, I'm totally cool with how much luck, has been involved in my life in, in many different ways. Um, you know, I'm also aware by the way that sometimes things that feel like good luck are actually bad luck. And sometimes things that feel like bad luck are actually good luck. It just takes some time to figure out which it is. Mm -hmm. So the way that you feel about it at the time might be very different than the way that you feel about it after the fact, you know, like years later. So like an example of that for me is when I got sick at the end of graduate school and I had to, take a year off from going out for a tenure track position. That's when I started playing poker. And of course, at the time, it felt very unlucky. Um, You know, but in retrospect, sort of with with time having passed and getting a different view on it, obviously I see that as lucky. Um, And I don't think that that makes any of my accomplishments less accomplished, you know? So I, I feel like what happens is that I feel like people aren't good at the mix, if this makes uh-huh. sense. So, so what I feel like is that people sort of either feel it has to be, you have to either attribute it all to luck or you have to attribute it all to skill. And I think that this is a problem that gets into these privileged conversations because there's no question. Like I was born, I wouldn't say on third base, but I was certainly born on second base. Right. And, um, uh, and, and, you know, and then I sort of ran around the bases from there, but I had a big head start and that's okay with me, right? Like I acknowledge that and I know that, and I try to obviously do the things that I can to um make, make sure that I'm a good citizen in the world. And I'm, I'm, I'm trying to hope that, that help other people have that same access, um, which mm-hmm. I think is really important. Uh, but so I, I feel like, People either say like, no, it's all my hard work. And don't tell me that I, I started with an advantage because that feels like you're taking credit away from me. Uh-huh. Or there are people who kind of go into the the sort of like, well, it's all it's all privilege. So I can't own my own successes at all. Yeah. And I just feel like people need to have a more nuanced conversation about it, right? Which is that, of of course, like, look, it, it's not just, it's not just, The privilege that I have today but like I wasn't born in 1600 that's like a really big deal Mm. that really helped me along so uh so I'm perfectly happy to say that I've had a lot of luck in my life and a little bit of skill and I've done a good job with a little bit of skill that was going to contribute to the way that my life turned out and I'm totally fine with that
2: yeah Well, I think that that makes a perfect segue to actually getting into the concepts in the book. Um, But first off, you know, what, why was this the natural sort of follow up to thinking and bets? Like what led to writing this book?
1: So, yeah, so, um, this one, this book really just came out of honestly, just conversations with readers. I don't think that I would have thought to write this book otherwise. For one thing, it's a really, it was a really hard book to write. Um, because basically what happened was that I had, I had readers who, who read Thinking in Bats and they said, okay, uh, you know, I, I get it. And it actually, interestingly enough, like Thinking in Bats, if we talk about the conversation we just had, is very much focused on luck and what's the influence of luck in your life, both good and bad. Um, and they said, okay, we, I get it. Like, you know, we're deciding under uncertainty and there's all sorts of ways that our, our decisions can go wrong and so on and so forth. So given that, you know, I have to make these subjective judgments, how do I actually do that? Like, how do I actually make a good decision? How do I actually uh, implement these kinds of concepts into a really solid decision process? And that was the question that I was being asked quite a bit. Of course, that's what I do in my consulting work, but but the readers of that book were asking me for that. And I just felt like, yeah, I can see what they're saying, right? Like there's a little bit of sort of how, sprinkled into thinking and bets, but it, it occurs toward the end and it's a little bit hand wavy and vague, um, just, you know, for space reasons. And it wasn't the focus of the book. And I can see why they're asking me for something that's less why and more how, and wow. I should try to do that. And so that's why I wrote the book. Cause I was trying to respond to what my readers were asking for.
2: Right. Well, let's uh, let's get into the concepts in the book, because <clears throat> like I said, I mean, to me, this was a manual for making the most important decision in your life. But I, I want to start with something you said early on in the book at the very in the introduction. You said all you can see is the output of your gut. You can't go back and examine with any fidelity how your gut arrived at its decision. You can't peer into your gut to know how it's operating. Your gut is unique to you. You can't teach your gut to somebody else such that they could use your gut to make decisions. And yet, how often do we hear people say, oh, just trust your gut? Um, why is that? And, and then more importantly, how do you actually disconnect that idea from making more rational decisions?
1: Yeah. So the gut, I think the gut thing is really interesting. Um, and I'm a little bit guessing here. I just want to say that like I'm, I'm kind of this is just this, some of this is conjecture. But I think that there's kind of two reasons why people really like that idea of trust your gut. I think one is you know, understanding what a good decision process looks like is quite difficult. And even though if you're making a gut decision, all the things that I make pretty explicit in the book, you're kind of doing implicitly already. Uh, It doesn't feel like it to you. Uh, And I think that um, it feel, you know, I, I, I think that in some ways it's easier than, actually implementing the kinds of things that I talk about that would really that would really make a decision process good so I'd sort of put that there number one there's three things I want to get to so that's the first conjecture um the second thing that I just wanna that I would say probably more so than the first is I don't think that people are generally lazy i, I actually don't think that um yeah. i i the the reason that that I probably would would say it's more likely, is that there's something in terms of the boost to one's identity that you get from making a gut decision. What do I mean by that? It's kind of like if I, Picasso wouldn't be Picasso if he could teach someone to paint exactly like Picasso. So. Like the Picasso ness of Picasso is something that you can't replicate, that's unique to Picasso. And if Picasso could hand off all of his tools to somebody else, his brushes and his paints and his palette and a canvas, and say, okay, if you use this process, you'll be able to do the thing that I did. Maybe then Picasso isn't so special. And I feel a little bit like the thing with gut decision-making, it's a little like that. Like part of the whole thing about you can't teach it to somebody else. It's unique to you. You can't, it's not really examinable. Somebody Mm -hmm. else can't use your gut to make a decision that it's a little bit in that Picasso category that when you make a great gut decision, it's something that's, you know, totally unique to you that you did. And it was, it was your uniqueness and your sort of gut decision-making capability that produced that amazing result that you now get to totally own. Uh, so well, you know, I think that that's a really big part of it. I, and the last thing I just want to say about it is, uh, I don't think you should never use your gut. I just want to be clear about that. I think that sometimes using your gut is just fine. It's just that the, the times when, you, when using your gut is just fine is, is when it doesn't really matter if you get a bad outcome.
2: Yeah. Well, it's funny because it it makes me think about how I choose podcast guests and book publicists hate me because there's literally nothing that we say, like, there's no formula. There's no nothing you could say to us that will guarantee that I'll say yes, because every decision is based on whether or not I just find this person interesting. I'm curious. And so they can't seem to figure out how to pitch them. Like, I remember we literally got a pitch that said, you've totally thrown my pitch process sideways.
1: Oh, that's funny. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Well, so one of the things you talk about is is learning to separate uh, outcome quality from decision quality. You say, um, you know, you talk about this concept called resulting, a mental shortcut in which we use the quality of an outcome to figure out the quality of a decision. And, And then you say that a necessary part of becoming a better decision maker is learning from experience. The experience contains the lessons for improving future decisions resulting causes you to learn the wrong lessons. Now, what's interesting is, is you know, with resulting, whether the outcome is bad or good, how do, how do we learn the wrong lessons regardless of whether the outcome is, is good or bad? Because that's what struck me the most. And then I think the thing that, you know, we see over and over, and particularly for creative people, they tend to be very attached to the results of their work. And even Seth Godin, who we had here recently, was talking about the fact that, you know, being attached to outcomes, particularly in creative work is terrible for it. Uh, but yet, we're so emotional about certain outcomes.
1: Yeah. So, so let let me sort of start start a couple sentences back, and then I'll get to that part. Um. So, how do we learn the wrong lessons from our outcomes? Well, I, I'm old enough to remember when people used to say things like, "I drive better when I'm drunk." So, I I think that's a pretty good example of learning a really bad lesson from getting a good outcome. Uh, I drove home drunk one day and I got home safely and I was very careful on the road. I was drunk. Uh, Mm -hmm. And therefore I'm drawing the conclusion that I actually drive better when I'm drunk. Now we would really like people not to make those types of, uh, you know, draw those types of conclusions just because they got a good outcome. So, uh, you know, basically uh, we, we can, We can see the problem very clearly when the quality of the decision is also quite clear. So it's very clear that nobody actually drives better when they're drunk. So when somebody declares such a thing to be true, we know that they have drawn the wrong conclusion from a good outcome. In the same way that if somebody goes through a green light and gets in an accident, we don't draw the conclusion that they're a bad driver. And if someone goes through a red light and gets through just fine, we also don't draw the conclusion that they're a good driver. But when somebody closes a sale, we draw the conclusion that they're a good salesperson. When somebody doesn't close a sale, we draw the conclusion that they are a poor salesperson. And the reason that we do it in those circumstances and you know, not in the former, but in the latter, is that in the former, we already know whether the decision is good. So it's the very opaqueness of the decision quality, which is pretty much always opaque in retrospect, certainly, um, yeah. when we're, you know, making decisions under uncertainty when there's hidden information and like the, the influence of luck is not exactly clear, um, that causes us to use the shortcut of if, you know, the, the decision quality itself might be opaque, but, but the quality of the outcome is not opaque at all. I know whether i won or lost. I know whether I closed the sale or not. I know whether the person that I hired ended up being a great employee or a poor one. And, you know, we even have this shorthand, which is, what do we really call a mistake, right? Like if you hire someone and they turn out to be a poor employee, what do we always say? I made a mistake. But we know that depending on how you measure it, somewhere around 50% of hires just don't work out. And, you know, the reason is that you're hiring somebody with very limited information. You know, you don't know what they're going to be like in the company. You don't have the time to find out because you'd have to actually have them in the company. That would mean hiring Mm -hmm. them in order to really get any kind of, you know, real certainty around that hire. So you can go through an incredibly rigorous and really high quality hiring process and still end up with someone who doesn't work out. But we call it a mistake. And that's, that's where we really start to get into trouble because then you're digging around trying to change things about your hiring process when you may not need to change anything about your hiring process. You're, you know, it could be that your hiring process was gonna produce a good result 80% of the time compared to the industry average of 50% of the time. And that, that given the circumstances, you're not gonna do much better than that. But that means 20% of the time that you're gonna hire people that you would have preferred not to have hired but now you're going to go and change your process most likely for the worse. So, you know, I think that's where we really get into these big tr- this sort of very big trouble with that. Why is it that we're so attached to to the outcome? Um I think it's because we can't we have a lot of trouble as human beings with time and figuring out what the trade-offs are between our present self and our future self. And we tend, this is kind of the point that I was making about, is it bad luck or good luck? I don't know. You have to let some time pass before I can tell. Um, we tend to, you know, we really make a lot of our decisions kind of in the moment. And so in the wake of the bad outcome, we'll do these snap judgments. um, and we're not good at saying, well, hold on a second. Let me imagine if it were a year from now and I looked back at this, would I really still feel this way? And that's where we get to, we sort of get this big attachment to our present self and the way that we feel in the present and the outcomes that we're getting in the present. Um, so you can think about it this way is that um, what outcomes have to tell us occur in the aggregate, right? So across a big set of outcomes, that's what outcomes have to tell us. But we're, we're sequential, in the way that we actually process those outcomes. So we're like, I'll make up a word, sequentialists, in an aggregate world, which I think is where that problem is really coming from.
2: Yeah. So let's talk about this concept of of hindsight bias. You know, um, you say you know hindsight bias makes you feel like the outcome was much more predictable than it was, and this can cause you to repeat some low quality decisions, stop making high quality decisions. Because I, I think about that that idea, you know, that that sort of phrase of oh, if I only knew, if I knew now, what I, I, knew, if that, I only knew yeah. then, you know, now. And I was like, well, then you wouldn't know what you do now if you, you know, if, if no you boy. had made a different decision. You know, uh, yet it seems like that is like a really, really big impact on on how we make decisions going forward. So, how do you prevent your hindsight bias from uh, changing the way you would make a decision going forward, or making a decision for the worse?
1: Yeah. So, so let me just so hindsight bias and resulting are a little bit related to each other. Um, in this sense, we can think about resulting as you sort of lose sight of the the luck element that there's lots of different ways that any decision that you make could turn out. I go through a green light I could get in an accident I could get through just fine. Um, And even outcomes that might have a 5% of a chance of occurring are gonna occur 5% of the time. Uh, And you're gonna see those 5% of the time. And yet we'll we'll assume if we get a bad outcome, even if it was only 5% to happen, that it must've been a mistake. So that's, that's kind of the resulting problem. The hindsight bias problem is actually... Uh, a problem of the other form of uncertainty, which is limited information. So when you make decisions, you only know what you know. And then after the fact, uh, information will reveal itself to you and will feel like sort of one of two things, that we should have known that that would be the case or that we did know it. So here's a very simple example that actually happened to me. Uh, I was in a grocery store and a woman was talking on the phone and she had an accent and a man said to her, oh, are you Italian? And she said, no, I'm Greek. And he said, I knew it. So I I feel like that's the best example of hindsight bias I've ever seen. Because obviously he didn't know it. He asked her if she was Italian.
0: Right. Yeah.
1: Like it literally happened in a split second. But this is Uh. happening all the time. Like how many times have people had someone in their life say, I knew it all along when you're like, no, you didn't know it all along. (laughs) Yeah. Right. I knew that was going to happen. Uh, so, so, so how, how you solve it is actually, well, so here, I think this is a really good example that gives you a a sort of glimpse into how you might solve this. Um, so if we think about the last election, not the one we just had, but 2016. Um We all know that Hillary Clinton lost Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and Michigan, uh, and she lost the, those three states by a combined total of eighty eight thousand votes across the three so this is a very close you can imagine you know if the vote had been taken on a different day, who knows uh maybe Trump would have won by more, maybe Clinton would have won them we don't know, but it was it was close so so obviously um uh you know it's it's you feel like those three states could have gone either way um but the interesting thing about that was that when you look at what was written about it, once she had lost, what you see is a lot of people really talking about the just all the mistakes that her campaign had made in not going and campaigning in, in those three states enough. So I, I don't know if people remember, but she was spending quite a bit of time in like Arizona, in Georgia, in North Carolina, in Florida, in Virginia, actually. Uh, and New Hampshire, and these were states, and some in Ohio, these were states that were pulling very close, kind of toss upy. But the polls in Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and Michigan were quite wide. I think Pennsylvania might have been the closest. It was like four or five points, something like that. Um, but Michigan and, and uh, Wisconsin were, she was pulling quite far ahead. So now, of course, she ends up losing those states, and, and you just you see I mean, this has been going on for like three and a half years or something that people are talking about the huge mistakes that she made in not in not campaigning there. But what we have to think about is what was the knowledge that she had at the time that was informing the decision that she made and then, and of course, the knowledge she had was the polls, and people need to sort of put themselves into the state of mind because it, this is kind of where it gets tricky because it's hard for us to remember. Uh, what our state of mind was at the time. But we did not know at the time that there was a big polling error. Up until the 2016 election, the polls have been pretty good. They've been pretty predictive. I don't know if people remember, but based off that polling, Nate Silver, for example, had um, predicted exactly the number of electoral college votes that Obama was going to win in either 08 or 2012, I think it was 2012. Um so the polls were pretty informative up until 2016. And you know, here's the thing about a polling error is that you don't know there's a polling error until after the vote has been taken, which is after the fact. You know, so so it feels a little bit like you asked if somebody was Italian, they said they were Greek and you said I knew it. Right? So we're looking at the polls And it feels like those polls are probably going to be pretty accurate because polls have been accurate in the past. And then afterwards, you find out they weren't accurate and you say, I knew it. And then what goes along with that is Clinton should have known that. And therefore, she made a mistake because she should have known that there was an error. So there's an easy way, and this kind of gives us a clue into how to fix this. There's an easy way to figure out if Clinton should have known this, which is to say elections are about as crowdsourced as you can get. Right, like every political pundit and consultant and, you know, data analyst from Silicon Valley, Valley who's writing on Medium, whatever, like everybody's analyzing strategy. So if there was some way to know that this polling error had occurred before the fact, one would suspect that there would be quite a bit written about this, that there would be people writing and saying, yo, everybody better watch out because there's a really big polling error in Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania and Clinton should be campaigning there. But when you actually go and search for an article of that type, it's crickets. There, are, In fact, the articles that you do find are critiquing Trump for campaigning in Pennsylvania specifically. So... This tells us, okay, so it tells us two things. One is this a very good example of hindsight bias because I think everybody feels like she should have known and everybody feels sort of like they did know. I think it's a very good example of hindsight bias. But the other thing is it tells us how to fix it, which is why do I know that that's an example of hindsight bias? Because I can Google it. Because I can go and I can look at the evidentiary record and say, what is the knowledge that people had at the time? Was it reasonable to assume that she could have or should have known this? And given what the inputs into her strategy were, which were the polls, and what we knew about the polls at the time, were her strategic decisions reasonable? And once you do that, you realize, yes, they were actually quite reasonable. Now, that means that what you wanna do is, as kind of like a second choice, actually take some time when you're thinking about a past decision to try to reconstruct in a rigorous way, what you knew beforehand and what revealed itself to, to you after the fact. So in the Clinton case, assuming that I couldn't go back and look at what people were actually saying, I could say uh, beforehand you had the polls and then after the fact, after the vote was taken, you saw there was a polling error. So I can see I can see what was revealed afterwards, right? And you can do that with your own decisions, right? So you you hire someone and they're not good. You can say, well, what did I know about them before the fact? How did they compare to other candidates that I had seen before? What did their CV look? How did their look like? How did their interview go? What did their references say? And then what revealed itself after the fact? So that's something you can do in retrospect. Now, the thing is, of course, that your first choice is to keep a good record of your decisions at the time so that you're not having to go back and reconstruct all of this. And the more that you can actually build that into your decision process, the more that you're going to be able to spot these kind of Clinton-like mistakes.
0: well let's
2: talk uh, about the the decision multiverse uh, you know you said a number of things here that really stood out to me but one of them in particular struck me you said you know, a single outcome doesn't generally tell us too much about whether a decision was good or bad, but we act like it does. We act like one coin flip is enough. That's the paradox of experience. And you know, when I, I read that, it's funny because we had Alison Traeger here who wrote uh, a book about risk called An Economist Walks Into yeah. a Brothel. I think she's also a portfolio author, but uh, I remember yeah. telling yeah. her about this. And uh, I said, listen, it's like, so this is the most ridiculous example. And I'm going to probably anger all the listeners in our audience who have small dogs, but at, at a certain point, it's like, okay, every woman who's ever come into my life who's had a Small dog has made a mess of it, whether it's a friend or a girl I've dated. So now it's like, oh, you own a small dog, swipe left, <laughs> which is you know ridiculous. But you know, I, I remember asking her about this. So in, in the context of that, you know, when you think about the paradox of experience, with that as your your example, what would you say to me?
1: Yeah, gotcha. So yeah, okay. So so the the question is, this is really like a sample size question, right? Yeah. And is is the dog the signal, or is something else a signal? Although the dog could be correlated. So what I, what I always think kind of works in this type of situation is to say, okay, it could be that women who choose small dogs are high maintenance. Or it could be that that was just totally coincidental. So that's what you're sort of trying to figure out. Mm-hmm. So uh, you, you're trying to figure out if you know how much of a one-to-one correlation between those two things are there. So in, in this particular case, First of all, let me just say, I, I don't think it's a big deal because I don't think that there, it's high stakes. Like, it's not a big deal if you just start swiping left on people who own small dogs. Let me just right. say that. So, so, so one of the things that I always say is like, I always, I always try to think about, um, well, what's the impact of the decision? And should I really care about this particular decision? And the answer here is if you're swiping less on people with small dogs, it probably is not going to affect your life very much. Um, yeah. But let's assume it did. Let's assume it was, it was, it was much more important to you. Um, then I would specifically try to tease that apart and think about what are, what are the features that are were correlated. In other words, I would actually go back and look at their profiles
3: Mm -hmm.
1: and I would say, let me look at what the candidates are for signals that that person was going to be high maintenance. One of them would be small dogs, but there might be other things in there. Right. And then I would specifically I would actually specifically go on dates with people who had small dogs, but didn't have some of the other features. Okay. <laughs> and then I would also go on some dates with people who had some of the other features, but didn't own a small dog. Uh uh-huh. So, so, but this, but by the way, this in particular is kind of a good strategy in general for life. So one of the things that we tend to do is when we're trying to, to select something like who to go on a date with, we tend to select people who we believe are going to be good to go on dates with. That makes sense, right?
4: Yeah. Yeah.
1: The problem is that it's not very informative. If you go on a date with someone who you think you'd like to go on a date with, and it turns out that you did like being on a date with them. What's actually a little bit more informative is to say, I think I wouldn't like this type of person. Let me go on a date with them. That's really informative. So, uh, so that's just understanding that the, that the stakes of getting, having one bad date are pretty low, but the information that you can gather by finding out that an assumption that you had about, uh, a particular type, um, is uh-huh. wrong. So, uh, like if I'm like, a, um, you know, if I'm, if, if let's say I were like a high school quarterback type or something, uh, I'm better off on my next date not picking someone who's of that type and going out instead picking someone who's more of like a computer engineer type or something. Right. Um, not to stereotype anybody because computer engineers can yeah. be high school quarterbacks also, but I hope people get the gist without. Um, so, uh, so I, if I go and do that and I find out that it's a great date that actually is incredibly informative to me, I'm assuming mm-hmm. I, I've already sort of chosen a type. So yeah. you have to sort of tease apart and understand, do I have enough data actually make a decision here or don't I? And if I believe I do, then I have to go back and I have to try to figure out, well, what are the other explanations for why this could be true? And then you actually have to go out and test those hypotheses.
2: Wow. Well, <clears throat> let's do this. In the interest of time, I, you know, I know that we've been already going for a good hour almost. And I like I feel like I could talk to you another 45 minutes about the other six chapters. Um, but what I want to do, I think is to look at the other concepts through the lens of probably what is one of the most high stakes decisions in our lives, just because it's, it's David Brooks even said, who you marry is the most important decisions you're ever going to, you'll make in your life. Now, if we're going to look at that through the lens of, you know, each of the, the next sections, right. Payoffs, preferences, and probabilities, um, you know, the power of precision, turning your decisions inside out and breaking free from analysis, um, paralysis, as well as the power of negative thinking. How would we do that? Let's just, use that as the backdrop for <clears throat> applying all of these concepts.
1: Okay. So, so actually understanding like the whole process, um, dating and marrying is actually a really good lens through which to understand kind of like the, the, the process from sort of soup to nuts. So, um, first of all, so I'm going to skip, I'm going to skip ahead a little bit to chapter seven first. Um, okay. cause it's a good place to start for dating. Um, so one of the things that we need to understand about ourselves is that, um, we think that we know ourselves better than we actually do. We think we know our preferences better than we actually do. Um, and a lot of times, and I'm sure that everybody's had this experience of thinking, oh, I thought I would really like that. And I turned out, I didn't like it, right? Like you think about a vacation that you've been dreaming about and you go to the place and you're like, I thought I would like that, but I actually didn't. And this is true of a lot of Things that there are just some things that are sort of matters, particularly in matters of taste, where uh, it's really important to sort of sample the world, to start building a model of what are the things I like and what are the things that I don't like. And this is actually really important conceptually. Um, And what that means is that you have to start figuring out what are the circumstances under which it's okay to get very experimental in the choices that I'm making because. Uh, I would like to actually do some pretty fast uh, iterations in order to sort of quickly figure out what my model of the world should be, what my model of myself should be, uh, what uh, who would make a good match for me in the case of dating and marrying. So the reason why this relates to what I talk about in chapter seven, which is how to sort of speed your decision making up, is that obviously, sort of by definition, getting experimental means going pretty fast. Right? You start to make some experimental choices that have Uh, let's face it, a pretty high chance of failure. That's kind of the point of experimental choice is that it's got a high chance of failure, but when it succeeds, it really, you know, it really tells you something. So in order to understand that, this actually helps us to understand something about the difference between a decision that you should go slow on and a decision that you should go faster on. Uh, In fact, maybe even a decision that it's totally okay to use your gut on. And that's to kind of, think about decisions through the lens of two things. One is options and one is impact. So let's start with impact. Um, Remember when we were talking a little bit, when you brought up Seth Godin and I said, I think one thing that happens is that uh, we're not particularly good at understanding what things are gonna look like more sort of farther off in the future. Uh, And the way that we feel in the moment um, tends to sort of take over and loom very large in the way that we're thinking about the decision. And if we could actually just get ourselves sort of further in the future, we would discover that, uh, you know, something that we thought was good luck was bad luck or something we thought was bad luck was good luck or something that we thought was a disaster wasn't such a disaster. So the way we think about the impact of getting a bad outcome on a decision is different depending on whether we're thinking about it in the immediate wake of having a bad outcome or from a longer term horizon. So a very simple example, uh, you're agonizing over what to order in a restaurant. Uh, and I think we've all had this experience where we decide on a dish and we get it and it's terrible. And we're all really sad. And we're, you know, I may, you're saying I made a huge mistake. I can't believe I ordered the fish. I should have ordered the chicken. It would have been better. Um, and you're pretty sad about the whole thing. All right, So you're feeling the impact in the immediate way but let's actually think about how, how impactful that particular decision is. So I'll just ask you, if, if I see you a year later, after you've had that really bad meal, mm-hmm. and I say, okay, it's a year later, how much of an effect did that bad meal have on your happiness <laughs> today?
2: Yeah, none. I mean, I think, I, mean, I remember you talking about this with me the first time we spoke, but yeah, absolutely none at all. Like, I couldn't even tell you what I ordered, probably.
1: Right. And th- I think that's true after a month and probably even after a week. And now, so now we can do the same thing with dating. You go out on a bad date and I see you in a year and it's a bad date. Like maybe you even left in the middle. Maybe someone called you up with a quote unquote emergency, right? Yeah. And you, you left the date in the middle. um. So it wasn't, it wasn't a good date. And I see you a year later. I say, you remember when you had that bad date a year ago, how much of an effect did it have on your happiness today?
2: <clears throat> Almost none.
1: Right. So what that tells us is that things like going on a single date, what you order in a restaurant, what movie you choose to see, what you choose to wear for a day, a whole bunch of things that go into this category are not particularly high impact decisions. And what I just did was something called the happiness test, which is saying to yourself, Mm -hmm. let me think about whether this impacts my happiness in a year. And then you do the same thing and say, what about in a month? What about in a week? And the... Shorter the time period is in which you would say, this really isn't going to have much of an impact on my happiness at all, uh, the lower the impact of the decision. Why is that important to do that? Well, because one of the, as we think about how experimental are we getting, how quickly are we deciding, how much are we doing like a full, thoughtful, blown out process in our decision making versus doing something that's a little bit more down and dirty and quick. Um, Uh What we recognize is that when we go to save time, in other words, we decide fast. One of the the results of that is that we're probably decreasing our accuracy. In other words, we're making it more likely that we get an undesirable outcome. But if the thing that you're deciding about isn't going to affect your happiness much at all in a week or a year or a month, then it doesn't really matter that you're increasing the chances that you're going to get an undesirable outcome. So therefore you should go very quickly. So the idea is swipe right on a lot of people. Swipe right is the good one, right?
0: Uh huh.
1: Yeah. Swipe right on a lot of people, go on a lot of Because
0: <laughs> yeah. it
1: doesn't really matter very much. And I think that people spend a lot of time trying to figure out, you know, is this someone I'm going to really like going out on a date with? Because they're so afraid of having a bad date. But who cares? You know, I mean, assume, like, and basically this should be a thresholding issue, right? It's like, I have a certain amount of time to go out on dates. So how many dates am I going to be able to go on a week? Um, And then figure out, you know, what the threshold is for filling that time with people that you can go on dates with and specifically choose people that you think are going to have a high rate of failure occasionally. This is actually really important. Choose people who are out of type, who you imagine you might not like. Because it's only a date, it's not going to have a big impact on your life, and you're going to find out a lot when yeah. when uh, it, it turns out that it was actually good, and it went against expectations. So that's number one, is go on a lot of dates. Number two, okay. the, the other reason why you can go on lots and lots of dates is because another way that you can mitigate the impact of getting an, an undesirable outcome is to quit. So... I think that one thing that happens in all sorts of decisions, whether it's like going on a date or um, choosing what TV series to to watch, or even something like choosing a college uh, or what job you're going to take, is that we sort of think about these things as permanent decisions. But there's almost no decision that's actually permanent. Decisions are all reversible to some degree or another. Uh, it's really a question of cost. So even if you take like what what um, university are you going to, um, you can transfer and people transfer all the time. There's a cost of transferring, uh, but it turns out that the cost of transferring is actually kind of low because credits transfer. So, so it's actually less expensive than you might think to transfer colleges. But people don't really think about that when they go into the college decision and then they get in these, this horrible anxiety and analysis paralysis and who am I gonna, you know, which, which one am I gonna choose? Because they forget about the reversibility. And there are people who are really pouring over dating profiles and, and really stressed about whether they should go on a date with someone or who should they choose to go on a date with or whatever. Because I think that we tend to think about these things as much more permanent and final than they actually are. But dating is by definition, super quittable. You go on a date with somebody, nobody says that you have to go on a date with them again. You can quit. In fact, you can kind of leave in the middle, as I said before, you know, might be a little bit rude, but sometimes the date's so bad (laughs) that
0: I, I, you know what,
2: I was on a date with a girl who channeled dead people because apparently that's, you know, the kind of people who you find in Encinitas. And I like talking to people who talk to people who are alive. She basically bailed out 45 minutes in the date. I was like, thank you. She put us both out of our misery.
1: Yeah, exactly. You know, we probably honestly, like in some ways we we might not do that enough. Right. To Just say to the other person. I, this date isn't going well. I assume you agree. Like we should probably both save ourselves some trouble. Right. So, so we're probably actually like, if you think about it, like by trying to be polite, we're, we're probably being rude because if you're not enjoying the date, they're probably not enjoying the date either. And it would be better to get put out of your misery. But, but this is one of the things that we want to think about in advance of a decision is how quittable is it? So this is where we get like the dating versus marrying, right? Like dating is an incredibly quittable activity. Marrying, there's a high cost to unwinding a marriage, particularly if you have children. Then it's a really high cost to unwind. So what this tells us is that we want to go pretty fast on the dating type of decisions in our life. and there's lots of them. I mean, this is kind of the idea behind like minimum viable products or A B testing. Agile software development, you know, this kind of stuff is that we want to divide the world into the dating type of decisions and the marrying type of decisions. And we want to go pretty fast on the dating type of decisions and think about those as ways to gather information about the world, ways to learn what our own preferences are, ways to learn what other people like. Right. So, so this would be true, like, for example, if you're talking about minimal viable product, you know, then you're sort of testing the world to see. Well, what are the users like? Because I don't want to pretend that I would know absent asking them. If you're a comic, you want to get up and try jokes. You don't want to spend time at home trying to analyze jokes into existence. It's better if you just get up on stage and lob them in and try them. That's going to be the most valuable information that you can get. Very equitable activity, right? You don't have to tell the same joke again. Nothing that says you have to stick to it. So. Do the dating stuff to build the models of the world and then having those models of the world now gives you more information that then when you do get into a marrying decision where you are gonna to wanna to actually think about, well, what are the, the different ways that I think that this could turn out? What's the probability of those futures occurring compared to other options that I might have available? In the marrying decisions, what's the probability I might find someone better than the person that I like now to marry? how might it go wrong? If I imagine I marry this person and in five years, I'm really unhappy. Why do I think that that is not necessarily to not go into the decision, but to think about what are the ways that I could do something about that? Right. So I could get ahead of it and and make it so that I'm more likely to have a successful marriage because I can, I've already thought about the ways it could go wrong. And now I can do some things about them, including maybe having a prenup. Um, Yeah. But, but, So so that's like that's the thing. It's like, are you are you is it a dating decision or a marrying decision and spend a lot of time on the marrying decisions. Before you actually bank the decisions, spend very little time on the dating decisions, just do a lot of them.
4: Mm -hmm.
2: Yeah, I I think that, you know, one of the things I really appreciated was you had this entire chapter on the power of of negative thinking. And um, I remember you quoted Gabrielle Auden's book as well. And I actually loved what you said about the secret and, and sort of the, the power of positive thinking. And, you know, I, I, I mean, I knew Nor- Norman Vincent Peale was kind of a fraud, but like I didn't know that he was the, the pastor at Donald Trump's first wedding. But I think that, you know, you said imagining how you might fail doesn't make failure materialize. In fact, there's a lot of value in picturing the obstacles that might slow you down or get you lost, preventing you from reaching your destination. And it, what that brought up for me was a memory of the first roommate that I lived with. And I remember him telling me, you know, he and his, his now wife, they went to marriage counseling before they got married. And I mm-hmm. thought, I was like, I thought people do that when they have problems in their marriage. He's like, no, this is basically to avoid problems. Yet, I think somebody on the surface might see that as negative, but it's actually not.
1: Yeah, exactly. So, so I think mm-hmm. it's really interesting. So with the power of positive thinking, you know, it's like you have a goal. that's a positive goal. I, I want to marry this person and have a really happy marriage for the rest of my life. Right. Um and I would not quibble with that, right? Like of course you should have a positive goal. But what the power of positive thinking tells you is that if you imagine happiness all along the way and success all along the way, um then that will actually create the success for you. Now, what's implied in that is that if you imagine failure, if you imagine the obstacles that you might see in the path, if you imagine the ways that things might go wrong and the ways that you might fail, um, that that will somehow create failure. Now, when when you're reading some of the power of positive thinking, um, it doesn't say that explicitly, uh, but it's certainly implied. And then you take something like the secret, which for mm-hmm. those who ha- aren't familiar with it, um, So it's so wacky. Uh, Your thoughts have magnetic energy and the magnetism attracts the things that you're thinking about to you. And it can somehow distinguish between when you're thinking, not just when you're thinking about something that's negative and something that's positive. So that if you're thinking about something negative, it will attract negative things to you and positive Uh, If you're thinking about something positive, it will attract positive things to you. But it goes even a step further and says that the universe knows what the negative thing is that you're imagining. (laughs) So like, if I'm worried, if I'm worrying that I might get caught in traffic tomorrow morning, then uh, I will get caught in traffic tomorrow morning. Now, I don't even want to go into how unscientific this is. But just so you know, you're
2: <laughs> you're preaching to the choir. So yeah, yeah.
1: I mean, your thoughts do have met some, you know, some. <clears throat> there is an EMG, which is magnetic, but they have to stick it right on your skull. Like it doesn't go out into the universe. And certainly, if you're thinking about an elephant, the universe doesn't. I mean, it's whatever. It's so wacky. Yeah. But um, but let's think about this problem with the traffic example, because um, I just think this is such a good example of why the power of negative thinking is so important. So. I am worried about traffic. I'm worried that there might be traffic in the morning. And so therefore I end up in traffic tomorrow morning. First of all, did I do that to all the other people who are stuck in traffic or was everybody? Who- <laughs> <laughs> was it only the negative thinkers that are stuck in traffic? Like that one, I've never been quite trying. Like, did I in, did I inflict this upon them? I don't, I think they yeah. would say that everybody thought. But the point is, if, I, if I'm worried about, if I'm worried about getting caught in traffic tomorrow morning, what is that going to do? it's going to make me think about how to avoid the traffic. Should I leave earlier? Do I, is this, can I afford to be late tomorrow morning to work? Because if I can't afford to be late tomorrow morning to work, then I might want to leave early just in case there is traffic. I might want to think about taking another route that would allow me to avoid the traffic. And I think that we do this all the time when we use ways. Mm-hmm. Like nobody's using a paper map anymore and saying, oh, look at the clear roads on the way to my destination. Everybody's like, hey, I'm going to turn Waze on because Waze is going to tell me all the ways that I might fail to get to my destination on time. And this is going to allow me to do something about it. It's going to allow me to reroute. So it's the worrying about traffic, assuming that you actually you actually do something about the things that you discover as you're thinking about the obstacles that might get in your path that actually will, will allow you to be successful. So what I would argue is that somebody who's just decided that they're that they're just going to imagine that they get to work on time and that they don't want to imagine that the the failures that might occur that they're going to have they're going to have a much higher likelihood of not making it to work on time than someone who's obsessed about whether they're going to make it work on time because they're worried about running into traffic or they're worried about their tire blowing. If they're worried about their tire blowing, I would say that their tires are probably going to be in better condition. Because they're going to be checking them, which is going to reduce the chances that their tire blows. If they're worried about, about running out of gas, they're going to be more likely to make sure they have gas in their car, so on and so forth. And this is true of everything that you do. If you're thinking about getting married and you, you think about what are the ways in which I might fail, then you can actually do something about it. Like go to marriage counseling beforehand, before you even get married. In order to start addressing the things that might go wrong well before they become critical.
2: Yeah. It's funny you brought up traffic as an example because I, you know, after I finished writing my notes on on your book, I actually started mapping out a blog post on the power of negative thinking. And I was, you know, saying you actually do this all the time to generate positive outcomes in your life, traffic being one of the best examples. Like nobody goes into rush hour traffic in LA thinking, oh, I'm going to, you know, get there on time by being in rush hour traffic.
1: But there's a lot, I mean, and the thing is that the people who are real adherents of the power of positive thinking, you know, it's like, I know that the secret is wacky, but when you look at it in the context of that literature, it's not actually that wacky. I mean, in the context of that literature compared to the other things, you know, the other ones might try to sound a little bit more reasonable, but it's all implied in there. And what the secret would say to you, if you get caught in traffic, is that it's your own fault because you were, you were thinking about traffic and you should stop doing that. And I'm like, oh my gosh, that's the worst advice I've ever heard. (laughs) Because what if you stop thinking about, well, what happens if uh, you know, I what happens if this quarter I don't close any sales? What am I gonna do? Why would that happen? Do I need to think about extending my runway? What are the ways in which I might fail to close sales? Because if I can figure that out, maybe I can figure out a way to increase the probability that I will close them and that the bad things won't happen. As an example. Maybe one of the reasons why I don't close a sale at one of my, or I lose one of my main accounts is that the person who I, I interact with at that company uh, leaves. And now somebody else comes in their place who has a relationship with somebody else. Okay, so now I'm imagining a lot of failure here, but what does that allow me to do? To Well, first of all, I can talk to the person and say, I just want to understand, like, what are your plans? Like, how long do you think you're going to stay with this place? So now I can go gather some information. I could find out how much of a risk it is that they're going to leave. If, if I get the sense that they're going to leave pretty quickly, or even if I don't, I could say, you know, oh, you know, I know that we've always, you know, my relationship has always been with you, but I'd love to sort of get to know other people on your team. You know, and you can expand your relationships with the people there so that you don't have one contact for your biggest account. None of that creates failure. That all creates success.
2: Wow. Wow. Um, This has been amazing. Like, I I feel like I could talk to you for hours on end about this because this seems like just this deep rabbit hole. But um, I think you've given us such a powerful way of looking at important decisions. So um, I want to finish with my final question, which is how we finish all of our interviews, the unmistakable creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody hear something unmistakable?
0: Oh, okay.
1: you know, for me, I feel like it's, it's really, it really comes down to how able is someone to actually live in somebody else's shoes? Because I think that so many things fall out of that. I think, first of all, really treating other people with fairness um, comes from that, right? Like, that real being able to stand in their shoes and say, if I were on the other end of this deal or this interaction, would I be happy with it, right? I, I You know, I think all, like compassion comes from that. Um, but I also think that for somebody, for your own being and your own ability to think strategically and to be a great decision maker and to have success, it all requires that you be able to stand in other people's shoes and see the world in a way that you don't necessarily see it yourself. Be able to view things from outside of yourself. And all the way from great decision-making and great strategy to, to like acts of compassion, I think come from that one thing. So I, I that's what, I, I think that's what I would say now that you've put me on the spot.
2: <laughs> I've been known to do that to people. Well, um, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us and share your story and your wisdom and your insights with uh, our, our listeners. Where can people find out more about you, your work, the, the new book and everything else that you're up to?
1: Oh yeah, thanks. So, uh you can always find me on Twitter at Annie Duke. Um you can go to my website which is annieduke.com. Uh and there's lots of stuff on there. Um you can certainly find links to the books, uh newsletter, um you can find a video of like talks and speeches and links to talks that I've given there uh to get to know my work in other ways. You can also find me on Medium. Um, cuz I do uh post some things on Medium sometimes. Um, But most importantly, in terms of anniedew.com, there is a contact form there. And I think that we talked about at the beginning of this podcast, you know, why did I really, why did I write How to Decide? And it came out of conversations with my readers. And so I actually really like it when people reach out to me. I'm not 100% on responding, but it's not because I don't find your note interesting. It's just sometimes things fall through the cracks for me. And I try not to. I'm probably about 90% to respond. Um, and I, I really do try to respond to people who, who write to me. And I love hearing from people who've interacted with my work. Um, it's, you know, I learned so much from it. So I hope that people will take advantage of that who, who are listening to this.
2: Awesome. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive,